Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I am joined by Megan Crow, Elizabeth McNulty, and Liz Lenevy. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hi. Today we're going to talk about settlement releases and agreements. This has come up time and time again where you settle a case and for a brief moment you are relieved perhaps that the case is settled, happy that the work that you have done on this case has led to a good result and that you can put it on a shelf. And then a few days goes by and your glee dissipates quickly when you receive an overly broad release that has paragraphs and pages and pages of language that was not negotiated and is quite clearly not related to anything you discussed relating to the case. So this is something that happens as plaintiff's attorneys. This is something that happens to us pretty much on a regular basis. And maybe we've gotten a little bit used to it, speaking for myself, to the extent that I get the release and Instead of being happy that we're just one step closer to being done with the case, I have dread because I know there's going to be a fight about additional provisions that have no business being in the release. So I want to start with a little bit of what I've learned over the years about when to think about the release language. First, it's never too early to think about the release language, but particularly when you are negotiating the case it's probably a good idea to get ahead of some of the key issues. And I'm thinking first and foremost about confidentiality. So Liz, have you had a situation where confidentiality was not discussed at all during the course of the negotiations? The case has settled, an amount was agreed upon, and really what you get in exchange for Settling the case as a defendant really should be a release of all claims, money for a release of all claims. Now, we know it's not that easy, but when it comes to confidentiality, that seems to be one of the clauses that just really gets overly broad. What have you seen? So there was one particular incident that I thought of when we were talking about this topic ahead of time in terms of confidentiality, and that's because it specifically came up in a trial. And it sort of struck me as odd because at the time that this issue happened, I was a much younger lawyer and I had never really given much thought to confidentiality beyond, okay, I can't publish my results in some lawyer magazine or I can't make a commercial about it and I have to probably tell my client, hey, don't go on the evening news and, and say what a terrible person the defendant is. And, you know, and the way that I generally describe confidentiality to clients is I explain, hey, everything is already, especially if the case has already been filed, everything's already out in public record. What we alleged in the petition is already out there. Anyone can look that up. It is your story to tell. You just can't go out and disparage the defendant. You have to be very careful about that. So that's how I typically approach confidentiality. But the issue where it came up was we had a couple years ago almost identical cases, two different plaintiffs, two different dates, same defendant, identical allegations for their negligent conduct. And what happened in the first case is that it proceeded as normal. The case ended up settling. And so a, a release was signed. And there was similar non-disparagement language. 
But then in the second case, that case actually went to trial. And because the conduct was identical between the two cases by the defendant, that first plaintiff became very important for what we call an OSI, an other similar incident. And specifically, it set up the evidence that the defendant had pre-existing knowledge that the condition of their property was unsafe. Therefore, had they acted on the first plaintiff that had been injured, the second plaintiff wouldn't have been injured. That goes to their knowledge about the danger of this condition. And that's very important for us to be able to get out there. It was very important for the jury to know. And so what we did was we had that first plaintiff give a video deposition and testify as to what happened and, and how it happened. And so in that deposition, there was no mention of the fact that the plaintiff, first plaintiff, had sued the same defendant, had gotten a settlement for money damages from that defendant. But then we walk into the pretrial with the judge and suddenly that settlement release, that signed settlement release becomes a big issue. And the defense attorney's waving it around the courtroom saying, this is confidentiality, confidentiality. And we had a big fight and I got very nervous that we weren't going to be able to play that testimony. And, you know, we went back and forth on it. And I made the same argument I'm making now, which is that it's not confidentiality as to the facts of the case. It's confidentiality as to the fact that there was a settlement and the amount of the settlement. Those are the two things we agreed to be confidential about. But the facts of the case, that exists in the public record. And luckily, the judge sided with us on that, and we were allowed to play that testimony. And it had a very powerful impact on the jury. I mean, the jury got worked up about it. When I spoke to them afterwards, you know, basically them coming up to me and saying, yeah, they knew. And I think about that case sometimes when we review these releases about how important it is to be so specific and careful with the language. Because if we had just had the client sign away, we'll be confidential about everything, then that could have easily changed the outcome in another case that we weren't even thinking about at the time. So the fact that we were so careful about the language and in crafting what exactly we were having our client agree to, that was a real life example of just how important it can be. So you represented the first plaintiff as well? Yes, we represented both the first and the second. Okay, so you negotiated that first release then? Yes, and luckily we handled it because I can imagine if someone else had handled it and maybe wasn't as careful, then that really could have, uh, really could have bitten us. And that's why it matters so much. It may seem like it's just words on a page, who really cares? But if you think about what we do, and Liz, like you say, what compels a jury, other incidents that this has happened before, it makes them feel nervous or unsafe, then that is important information. And it's very important information that the defendant knew there was a problem and didn't do anything about it. My cousin, Laura, in Alabama, texted me this week, and she is a listener, and she loves hearing about real cases and real stories. So on that note, I had a similar situation in that there was a release drafted. So it was the first day of trial. Jury was being picked. Case settled. We were in open court, and we announced to the judge that the case had settled, and we were actually on the record talking about the settlement. And I didn't remember this at the time, but we talked about just a little bit of the terms of the confidentiality. Fast forward to a week later, I get the proposed release, and it is overly broad. Liz, as you say, we can't talk about the case, the facts of the case, the identity of the parties, really anything. 
And I, at that time, was pretty sure that my philosophy on confidentiality was if it's negotiated, you may have it, but only to the amount of the settlement. Not that there was a settlement, not that there was a lawsuit or that there were allegations of negligence, but for that amount of money. And quite frankly, most of the time, our clients don't want other people to know about how much they actually got or what the case settled for. So it's a mutual benefit in that way. I push back on the defense attorney and I say, this wasn't negotiated. He says, basically, I don't care. I'm not going to pay you until you sign this. I draft the release in a way that I believe is consistent with the agreement and is reasonable. I have my client sign it. I produce it to the defendant, still no money. I file a motion to enforce the settlement, drive to the courthouse. In between that time, had gotten a copy of the transcript where it was very clearly stated that I agree to the amount of the settlement being confidential and nothing more. Get to the courthouse, show the transcript to the judge, and the judge is furious. The judge says, Mr. Defense Attorney, did you bring the check? Mr. Defense Attorney says, no. Judge says to the defense attorney, where is the check? Defense Attorney says, it's in my office. So he could have brought it with him, and he didn't. The judge says, how long will it take you to get back to your office, sir? And I say, it's 80 miles, judge. <laughs> and so the judge says, you have an hour and a half to deliver that check to Ms. Gunn's office. So those are the games. Now, what could I have done? The first day I got the release, what could I have done? I guess I could have sent it to my client to sign. And then what would have happened? Well, she would have signed an overly broad confidentiality clause that would have set she and I up for failure. Now, who do you think she would have been mad at if for some reason she had breached that confidentiality and somebody had called her on it? Who do you think? Oh, you. Me. <laughs> me. So why on earth would I set me up? Yeah for heartbreak in the future. She'd be mad at Amy Gunn. Amy Gunn deserves the, her ire because I would have let her sign it. So, but it would have been easier. Would have been a lot easier. Could have gotten the money a lot faster, but it would have been wrong. It would have been the wrong thing to do for my client and for us. There are also two important lessons that were learned that day, in my opinion, based yes. on the, the story you just told. One is the lesson that you learned that this particular defense attorney is someone that's going to pull these kinds of punches. And you're going to remember that going forward. Who here right? thinks I have forgotten that <laughs> and or his name? Yeah. Right. Right. No. You call no, him no Mr. Hands. Defense Lawyer. But we know who you're talking about. <laughs> but also, he learned something really important that day, too. He did. And that's if he tries that with you, and I'm hoping he knows that if he tried that with anyone at this firm, he would immediately get called on it, hauled into court, and embarrassed in front of a judge. Yes. And that's a very cringeworthy lesson to learn, but it'll stick with them. And that was worth the price of admission, quite frankly. That was. <laughs> I think when it comes to confidentiality clauses, it's helpful and important to think early on in your case whether this is a case that you want to agree to any sort of confidentiality in. I know we recently handled a case where we knew that we did not want a confidentiality agreement more so than maybe just the amount like Amy you were talking about because it was a case that was indicative of a bigger issue in an industry 
And it was important to us that, you know, people know about this issue that's going on. And so they wanted to settle the case. We were preparing it up for trial and they were trying to settle it. And we made it very clear early on that we were not going to engage in settlement negotiations at all unless they knew that we were not going to agree to a broad and sweeping confidentiality agreement. And uh, lo and behold, the offer like doubled in a week <laughs> and then it and then it got done. But I think setting those expectations early and recognizing which cases that that is going to be an important consideration in is very important. I think that's so true because, again, it is almost assumed, at least in a lot of the med mal cases that we work on, that confidentiality is just part of the deal. And I have to constantly remind defense attorneys and mediators that it's not an implied term of the agreement. Now, Megan, what you were saying, you also have to have client buy-in. And this is where it gets a little tricky because oftentimes a client will say, well, they're willing to pay this, but they want confidentiality. I think it's just hard to imagine for a client why that matters and why that should tank the deal. And you have to explain the way it's worded, you can't even tell your mom that you settled the case. Or what if you are in line at the grocery store and someone asks you about your injury and you say, oh, I sued blankety blank and they paid me. That's technically a breach of the confidentiality clause and you could be sued for that. So you have to set up this kind of scenario where it makes them a little bit like worried about it. But at the end of the day, when you're sitting there with money on the table after all these years of litigation, it's in your grasp. You know, most people want to take it, but the defense attorneys know that. And that's why, Megan, it's so important what you just said, which is talk about it early. Tell the client why it's important. Mention it to the defendant. Now, I, again, with a lot of the medical malpractice cases, I think if I started saying no confidentiality, they would roll their eyes because we've been through so many now together. And I sue a lot of the same, you know, healthcare providers and a lot of them have the same lawyers that they'd be like, sure, Amy, okay, wink, wink. Yeah, right. So maybe I've made a mistake there, but I do, and I do believe set up a really robust idea that it's going to be narrow. It's going to be very narrow. One other thing that I've noticed recently that is kind of interesting, and I'm not sure what to do about, is we had a release, and it mentioned that the release also applies to not only the released parties, such as the defendants and any of the associated entities, but the released parties' attorneys and insurers from any claims related to the conduct of the released parties and or their attorneys in the defense of this claim. So basically, I guess what they're saying is, if the attorney is somehow negligent, I don't know, in negotiating this or in defending this, somehow my client is going to forgive them that negligence with this settlement? And that made no sense to me. Have you seen that before? I have not seen that before, but my immediate thought is, well, why stop at the insurance company and the attorneys? I'll, I'll release your mom, your yeah. dad, your dog, yeah. your neighbor. Where does it stop? It doesn't. But, it doesn't but for what conduct? I mean, so I struck it and nobody pushed back and it was fine, but it was just a really strange, I hadn't really seen that before. And then another one recently is that the parties agree that the release shall not be used as precedent in any other claim, suit, action, or et cetera. And any attempt to use the release as precedent in any other case shall 
be considered a material breach of the agreement and shall subject the breaching party to damage. And I'm like, what? Because oftentimes, and this is with confidentiality, they really care about us not putting it in the Lawyers Weekly or not putting it on our website or doing commercial about it. And I get that. But with this particular paragraph, using it as precedent, look, I'm not a signatory on this release. Lawyers don't sign releases. I'm not a party to this release. The defendants aren't paying me anything. My client is paying me. So I looked at this and I was ready to push back on it. But then I thought, well, it really doesn't mean anything. How is my client going to use this as precedent the next time this defendant malps her? I mean, I don't know. And how is the defendant this is my favorite part was trying to make it sound mutual. Like if the defendant insurance company uses this settlement as precedent, my client can sue them. I mean, it's just, it's, it's stupid. Well, that was my question is when I think about who is more likely to use it as precedent, it's going to be the defendant corporation who probably gets sued regularly, right? So is this a situation where they try to come to me and say, hey, your client suffered this injury. We paid so-and-so plaintiff, <laughs> this much money, therefore you should take this much money or you should tell your client to take this much money. When would that happen? One. Yeah, and who cares? Whose damages like, are that? Like, like right. do I then reach out to the other plaintiff's lawyer or if it was my client, do I then reach out to my client and tell them, hey, I, I guess XYZ Hospital or XYZ Corporation is in breach of the settlement release, but also did they sign it? Do they have a representative who signs it? So that's the biggest farce of all this, isn't it? The mutual confidentiality, the mutual this, the mutual that. Those guys never sign these releases. <laughs> no. I can count the number of times that a defendant or their representative has signed a release probably on my hand, on one hand. And so it's really kind. And again, that's another reason why pushing back on this stuff it shouldn't be that onerous because if they're pretending like there's a mutual confidentiality clause, then why the hell haven't you signed it? So let me talk about liens and indemnification. Erica's not here today, but this came up in a case recently with her, and it feels like it comes up every single time a release shows up. So there's almost always a paragraph about, hey, if there are liens out there, these liens need to be taken care of by the plaintiff using the money that we're paying the plaintiff. And we deserve indemnification by the plaintiff for any outstanding liens, Medicare, Medicaid, attorneys, whatever. And I don't love that language. But over the years, I've learned, knock on wood, it really hasn't ever meant anything as far as setting my client up for any kind of liability. And I can understand as a defendant why you wouldn't want that uncertainty. Is there a lien that for some reason, because the defendant has knowledge of the lien, could open itself up to having some sort of responsibility for the lien? So I understand why defendants want indemnity. I'm not even mad about it. But we still have to be very astute when we read them because they can also be pretty overly broad. So one of the things that comes up occasionally is when the release requires the attorney, not just the party, but the attorney to be a signatory to the indemnity clause or the indemnity agreement. And that, ladies, is unethical. 
So I have formal opinion 125, and this is particular to Missouri, but Missouri follows the rules of professional conduct and rule 4-1.8E says a lawyer shall not provide financial assistance to a client in connection with pending or contemplated litigation. And there's a couple of exceptions like litigation costs and things like that. And the formal opinion goes on to say that financial assistance can take many forms, gifts, loan guarantees, et cetera. And essentially, if a client owes a debt to a third party who expects payment from recovery, an attorney may not agree to pay that third party from the attorney's own funds if the client does not pay the third party. So that's considered a loan. It's a conflict of interest. And so... Having an indemnity clause in a release that in any way requires a lawyer to be a party to that indemnity is unethical, not only for the attorney to sign it and to agree to that, but my favorite part is the lawyer that even asks the plaintiff's attorney to sign a release that includes this indemnification is also being unethical because Rule 4-8.4a says it is professional misconduct for a lawyer to violate or attempt to violate the rules of professional conduct, comma, knowingly assist or induce another one to do so or to do so through the act of another. So me asking someone to do something unethical is unethical. So when you get these releases, this is kind of a fun day. You get a release that has this overly broad indemnification that says plaintiff and her attorney agrees to indemnify, defend, and hone harmless the defendant, blah, 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 blah. I push back and I say, no, I'm not a party to this release, this, that, and the other. And they say, well, blah, 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 blah. I send them formal opinion 125. And I say, look, buddy, you're lucky I don't report you. <laughs> I don't do that part. But I dream about doing that part. But usually that's the end of the story. Anybody else had any problems or concerns with indemnity clause or liens? I had an interesting lien issue come up not too long ago. It was actually a pre-suit settlement agreement, and the client had been injured and had received a settlement offer from the insurer before even retaining counsel, and then didn't do anything with it, and then hired us. We sent a letter of representation. They acknowledged it and said, hey, by the way, we made this offer for settlement. And when they originally reached out to us, they sent an email with the pertinent terms of the proposed settlement offer. And our client had agreed to those. And there was not any lean language exchanged in these emails. They didn't send us a full document release. We told them verbally that we were going to agree to it and asked them to send us a formal release document. They sent it to us along with the check. As we're reading it, there's this really overly broad lien clause. And in this case, the amount of the liens, I think, exceeded the insurance funds. And so at that point, we're looking at this and it's not smelling right. And so we send the check back and say, we're not signing this release file a case, case is litigated for 
about six months. We've exchanged discovery at this point. And then all of a sudden, the defendants file a motion for summary judgment on the basis that this case was already settled. So (laughs) then I got to do some good old-fashioned law school-style contract briefing about what constitutes offer acceptance and consideration. And it was kind of fun because I'm a nerd. But we ended up winning the um, summary judgment motion because this lien term was a material term and because it hadn't been stated to us in the version of terms that we had initially accepted, you know, it altered the agreement in such a way that it didn't constitute acceptance, but they pushed back hard against it. And basically we're trying to argue in court that this is just, you know, one of those give me's yeah, settlement implied. term. Yeah, implied term. And this always happens. And we're like, but it wasn't told to us in this agreement. And it was not accepted to in this specific agreement. Yeah, just because so. you declassified it in your brain doesn't mean it actually got declassified. Right. And they had litigated for like six months. And we were, <laughs> our secondary argument was your conduct, your course of conduct was acknowledging that we did not accept it or else you wouldn't have been litigating this far. So it was an interesting issue. So is the case still going on? It is. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned to hear how that goes. (laughs) Okay. I have another question. Every release has language similar to, sure, yeah, we're paying you a bunch of money, but we're not admitting liability. Or put it a little more eloquently, it is further understood and agreed that the above payment is made in the compromise of a doubtful and disputed claim, and that the payment is not to be construed as an admission of liability, therefore, such liability having been expressly denied. Now, we all sitting here at this table know those words don't mean anything, but I have had situations where a client has seen this language in a release and has said, what? They're not admitting any fault or any liability. So how have y'all dealt with that? The first case I settled, the client called me and was like, hey, it says that I'm saying the defendant doesn't admit liability, but he did this to me. The defendant did this to me. And I was like, yeah, it's just this is part of it. It's just they're paying you this money. You agree. It doesn't actually mean anything. Like It's just kind of how this all works. And she understood that. But I think that for a lot of people out there, like our clients, they just don't understand, especially we were very far through litigation. So, I mean, there's admissions that this did happen. And I think that's a difficult conversation to have. But I guess to us, to lawyers, it doesn't actually mean anything. But as the person signing the piece of paper, I could see where that would be somewhat concerning. I try to get ahead of this by explaining to the client what a release looks like before we actually start even getting into, you know, firm numbers. Agreed. And I explain that this is something that they will probably include in there. More likely than not, they'll include it in there. And you need to know it really doesn't mean anything. And how I know it doesn't mean anything is because we've had cases where they've admitted liability <laughs> in the case. They have filed an answer admitting liability. But then when we get the settlement release, suddenly they're saying, oh, no, take back. I want to take that back. I was just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> and that's how I know it doesn't mean anything. It's just boilerplate language. And I explain to clients, look, they're trying to buy your piece. And a little bit is also them trying to get some peace themselves. And the way mediation works, the way negotiations work and settlement is that you're probably not going to be happy with everything. But as long as you're happy at the end of the day, that's all that matters. I agree. I try to discuss Hey, look, these are the words on the page, but let me just tell you this. If they really didn't think they did anything wrong, ain't nobody paying you any money. (laughs) So joke's on them. All right. One last thing, ladies, and then we'll wrap this up. The release that I got last month 
the first line said, know all men by these presents. <laughs> and okay, so that's just silly language, old school language. Really? <laughs> really? So do you think that I let it go? No, no. I, I just, I couldn't let it go. So at first I wrote, known all women by these presents. And I thought, all right, no, don't be silly. So I changed it to know all people by these <laughs> presents. And I sent it back redlined to the defense attorney. And to his credit, he accepted that redline change. He did. He did. I didn't get any pushback on that. And that's not the only time I've seen that. Now, I want to believe that it's just cut and paste from, I don't know, 1942? <laughs> I, I mean, probably. It's like saying comes now at the beginning of a pleading, which I've even yeah. stopped doing. I just <laughs> say have? plaintiff submits the following. <laughs> oh, I, st I still do the comes now. It feels so official. It's so it's like, dumb. You know, it's so dumb. It is so dumb, but it's also like the oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm like, okay, that's a little bit of it like, does. It you know. It feels like, all right, I'm here. I'm at the big time. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Look, well, that's a lot <laughs> what's the point of me going to law school, doing all this work to become a lawyer if I don't now get to use like a little fancy language every now right. and then? You've earned it, girl. I've earned it. All right. Well, known all people by these presents. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Episodes drop every Wednesday and we'll see you next time. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury Is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today.